You are listening to an Emmanuel Community Church podcast. For more sermons or information about the church, visit our website at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. I didn't think about it until this week, but I did the math. And as of next month, I will have spent half of my life as pastor at Emmanuel Community Church. That's hard for me to imagine. That's just like half my life? I came here when I was 35 years old as pastor, and I have now, as of next month, been here 35 years. Now, you can now figure out how old I am. (laughs) Some of you will need a calculator because it's a big number, but it made me realize you know, the, the time and, and made me think about what we're dealing with as a church right now. Let me bring you up to speed. It's been six months since we've talked about this. It's been five years since we began to talk about a transition here at Emmanuel. We started the study. We had several teams of people working together. We read books. We prayed We contacted many, many people. We had, I don't know how many meetings. And then as we were getting, you know, towards making some commitments and decisions, the pandemic hit. And so it was the wrong time to make that kind of a transition. So I agreed to stay a couple more years. I'm glad I did uh, because I got to do the book of Romans. I'm also found the book of Romans very difficult. So that was good and bad, wasn't it? But we started again after the pandemic and uh, we had many, many more meetings and read more books. And we announced to you in June that Pastor Joshua Height will be the next lead pastor of Emmanuel Community Church. Let me share a little bit about that with you. Some of you have been saying to me or to us, uh, Pastor Josh preached for like four weeks And then I came back a few weeks ago and preached, and some of you said, I thought you retired. And I said, no, 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 you haven't been listening. Let me me explain again. I will do most of the preaching through the end of 2023. The reason we did this, and we planned this a long time ago. The reason we did this is because the new pastor needs to have the opportunity to kind of get his feet on the ground, to, to, be, to get to know you and to do some visionizing and some strategizing to work with our, with our lead team and with our staff. And that's essential. And so um, I'm doing the preaching through the end of this year, or most of it. Pastor Josh will then start preaching most of the time after the 1st of January. I'll be preaching periodically. And then on April the 21st, I will preach my last sermon as pastor As we finish uh, Romans 16, uh, I preach my last sermon, and that day officially retire. So that's the plan, and if you've been wondering what is going on, we have decided to work together as a team for a period of about a year. Now, let me just clarify some things for you. I've had several people say to me, more than a few, say, now there's no retirement in the Bible, and I want to say, what Bible are you reading? Because I think there's retirement transition all through the Bible. In fact, actually, the Bible is all about transition. Whether it's kings or judges or prophets or whomever, these people aren't often dead before they hand over the baton to the next leader. That's 
That's the way it works. In fact, in the New Testament, you have Jesus, who's 33 years of age, who, if you would, retires at the age of 33 from earthly ministry to do something else and hands the baton to his disciples, who hands it to their followers, and so forth. It's always been amazing to me that people who say there's no retirement in the Bible, many of them are retired. <laughs> and it just seems like it's, there's different rules for different people. By the way, just to take it a step further, there actually is retirement specifically in the Bible. Priests in particular, and I'm not gonna list every reference because there's lots of them, but priests are told that from the time they're 30 to 50, they can serve as priests from 30 to 50, from 30 to 50, it goes on and on until we get down to Numbers chapter eight, where it says, this applies to the Levites. Men 25 years old or more shall come to take part in the work at the tent of meeting. At the age of 50, they must retire. So there it is, and I'm beyond 50. <laughs> so I think, I've, uh, I think I've reached that point. I want you to know when we talk about retirement, I'm not retiring from my faith, obviously. I'm retiring from a specific role of ministry, and I'm going to do some other things. At least the plan is, Karen and I have already applied to several places to continue volunteering and serving and uh, we hope to be able to be involved. And after we're gone from here for some months next year, uh, we're hoping that maybe in 2025 we can come back and serve at the discretion, the leadership of Pastor Josh. And uh, just like you do, I'd just like to be able to use my gifts in the, in the church body as well. So that's the plan and that's where we're heading. I will simply say this, I have been so pleased with your response to Pastor Josh uh, and to me through this whole thing. Uh, it's just been so encouraging. It's done my heart good. What we're doing here is very unusual. You probably know that the track record for long-term pastors in large churches moving to a next pastor, uh, the track record's not good. But we think we can do that differently. And so we've changed how we... how. How many have done this, not all, but how many have done this? We've changed it, and we believe this can and will be effective, and I'm excited about it. I'm excited where it's headed. I hope you are too. Now, before we move into the time of our message, let's spend just a moment. I'd like you to pray for yourself. I'd like you to pray for our transition, for Pastor Josh in particular. Uh, you've already seen this morning that our youth are the, just about in 30 minutes going to start their final service up at Headrush, uh, up at uh, Camp Machindo. And uh, so there's lots of things we can pause to pray about. So would you take the next few moments and just pray to yourself. Our Father in heaven, we know that you are present as more than 200 of our youth meet this morning for a time of commitment and celebration in their worship service. And I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would be evident and powerful in that room. And I pray that lives would be changed and even many 
could be called out for a ministry to you. Father, I thank you for this church and what we've been able to see you do uh, throughout, the, throughout the years in this church. And Father, it's, best, it's been exciting, but we now pray for a transition and we pray for Pastor Josh as he uh, begins to lead us uh, for the next many years. We pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would guide us all and give us wisdom. In your name we pray, amen. Well, a few months ago, my wife and I were outside uh, doing the kind of fall cleanup like many of you do as well. And uh, we did the mowing and the trimming and we took care of the garden stuff and some more mulching. And it was an all-day thing on a hot day. And you all know what that's like. And you get that dirt and that mulch all over you and you're just covered with dirt. And by the end of the afternoon, I was tired and I was sweaty and I was so dirty and I went in and took a shower and I came out and told my wife there's never a shower that feels better than when you're really really hot and sweaty and dirty there's something about that all showers are good but that shower is the best because I was so dirty and it was like I was transformed well actually if I could that's today's passage if I could tell it to you in a simple little illustration, that's it. We're gonna learn in this passage today that God says, I had to turn you over to disobedience so that I could clean you up. You had to know what it was to be dirty so you would know what it means to be clean. Today, we conclude our Deep Mercy series, Pastor Josh already said. We're gonna look at God's mercy one more time to both Jews and Gentiles, and then we're gonna see a doxology or kind of a worship song that Paul writes to conclude this section. Take your Bibles, sermon notes, and join me. We're in Romans chapter 11. We're starting with verse 25 all the way down to verse 36. We're gonna take it in three parts today. Before we do that, let me remind you what we're learning. Number one, our God is extremely merciful. We were reminded that during our communion time. What a merciful God. The world sees him, even some of us see him as a judgmental God waiting to just strike us with lightning. And again, he is a God of justice, but he is more so a God of mercy. Secondly, the salvation of the Jews and Gentiles is amazingly, intricately interwoven. When you talk about the salvation of one, you can't help but talk about the salvation of the other. Now, back in October of 2022 is when I began the series on Romans that we've now been in just over a year. We've taken a few little breaks, but we've pretty much been in Romans for the last year. The very first weekend that I preached to you, I showed you this, this outline. It's a five-part outline. I told you this is what we would be following. We looked at sin, salvation, sanctification, sovereignty, and today, I'm going to draw a line there, today we finish the sovereignty section. What we have left is service, and we'll begin that after Christmas. Let me give you an even simpler outline. If you wanted to think about the book of Romans in the simplest way, I think it would be this. The first 11 chapters are his word. We might say orthodoxy. 
Orthodoxy, uh, you know the word ortho, you orthodontist or orthopedic surgeon, they make your teeth or your bones straight. That's what it means, straight, ortho straight. Orthodoxy means straight thinking or straight belief or straight theology. This is the doctrine and theology, chapters 1 to 11. It's been so difficult because that's what it's about. It's about straight thinking. Now, chapters 12 to 15 that will start after Christmas, 12 to 16 actually, is our walk, how you live out what you've learned. And that's the word orthopraxy. Now, we don't use that word as much. It also has that word ortho, straight, Praxi means action. So straight thinking, straight action. That's what the book of Romans is about. And we'll get to the action part again at the last Sunday of this year. Now, quickly, I'm going to review the last two weeks. In Romans 11, 1 to 10, we saw that Israel as a nation has rejected Christ. And that we reminded again, grace is the only path to salvation. There's no other way. So Israel individually, some have turned to faith in Christ, but as a nation, they've rejected Christ. Last week, we learned that God has taken Gentile believers and grafted us into the olive tree. Now, the olive tree throughout the Old Testament is a symbol of Israel. So even though you might have been born a Gentile, you have been grafted into God's tree, Israel. And someday he will restore Israel to that same tree. That brings us to today's text. We're going to look at the mystery, then we're going to look at the mercy, and then the last few verses, three verses, we're going to look at the marvel of God, who he is. Okay, the mystery. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now that last part, as you can see, is a quote. And we'll get to that in a moment. Paul began by explaining a mystery to his reader. Now, if I hand you a book and say it's a mystery, you probably assume that as you start reading this book that you won't know exactly who done it or whatever the mystery is until you get to the very last chapter. So that's how we think about mystery, not biblically speaking. In the Bible, a mystery is something that used to be hidden but is now revealed. All you have to do is look for it and it's revealed to you. So Paul says to you, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery. It's already been revealed. What is it? Israel has had their hearts hardened towards God. They have hardened their own hearts and then he has hardened their hearts further. That's what God does. He takes what you do and he magnifies it. Now, I want you to see that it says in part. Israel has experienced a hardening in part. The in part simply means not all of Israel, but many of the people of Israel have rejected the Messiah. You remember Pharaoh? When Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart. We read again that he hardened his heart again. And then we see in chapter 9, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. So once you harden your heart, at some point God may harden it further. And that's what he did here in this case. This was done so that the full number of Gentiles could enter the kingdom. There's a number, you say? Yes, there's a number. What is the number? I don't know. 
Even if I knew the number, it wouldn't help me because I don't know every person who's ever come to faith in Christ. I don't know everybody's heart. You don't either. So there is a number. God has a number. We just don't know what that number is, but we know it's important. Now, let me just quickly say something about numbers. Back when I was first here at Emmanuel, there was a movement across America in churches called the Church Growth Movement. And every conference and every seminar you went to was about church growth and numbers. And so they taught you how to count your people and how to have enough seats and how to have enough parking spaces in your church. And they would tell you that if you had a kind of a low Sunday, you had to assume maybe there was 20 people in the bathroom when you counted. So you might want to add them. And probably some people forgot their phone out in the parking lot, so they walked out there to get it. So you ought to count them too. And you just threw some extra numbers in because your numbers always had to be bigger. And I just want you to know I hated that. I hated that numbers focus. Then, in the last 10 years, it's reversed, like anything in life does. It's gone 180 degrees to the point that numbers don't matter. You don't even need to count. All that matters is that the church is healthy. Now, I'm gonna be honest with you, I hated that too. (laughs) What I like is somewhere in the middle. I think numbers are important, but I don't think numbers are the measurement or the only measurement of the health of a church. So I think that's an important part of it. And God says there's a number of Gentiles, a certain number. Back when Elijah said, God, I just want you to know that I'm the only godly person left in Israel. God said, (laughs) I've actually counted, Elijah, I've got 7,000 of them. 7,000. When the early church began, every time they had these big meetings, it would say that a certain number, in this case, 3,000 were added to the number that day. So you see, numbers are important to God, but they cannot be the only measure. God says there is a number. And at that moment, the world will end, or at least as we know it will end. At this point, all of Israel will be saved. And some people believe that means every person from Israel will be saved, and I don't think that's what it means. I think it means Israel as a people group, as a nation. It doesn't mean every individual. Not all Gentiles have come to faith in Christ. Although we talked last week about how the Gentiles have turned to him. Not all of them. You work with a lot of people who are not Christians, All of Israel will be saved, meaning the nation will recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Paul quotes two passages from Isaiah to prove this. By the way, I I got to thinking about that a lot this week, and I think, man, I keep referring to Isaiah when we study Romans. So I went back and counted. 27 times in 16 chapters, Paul quotes Isaiah. And here are a couple of them that we're going to see. In fact, I'll just show them to you now. The deliverer will come from Zion, in other words, Jesus will come out of, out of Israel. And secondly, he will wipe away all sin. He will remove Israel's sin as he removed our sin. So those are the promises from Isaiah and God will keep his promises. Brings us to the mercy. As far as the gospel is concerned, they, the Jews, are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and God's call are irrevocable. Mark that, underline that, remember that. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may know 
that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. Does that sound circular? We'll come to that. For God has bound everything over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Now, currently the nation of Israel has rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, they are enemies. And some of you might say, boy, enemies sound strong. It does. It does, but please understand that anyone who is not a believer is an enemy of God. Some of you would say, well, I know some good people who are not Christians, but they're good people. They're still enemies. Romans chapter five, while we were God's enemies, that means before you came to Christ, you were an enemy of God. If you don't accept his son, you are his enemy. And the Israelites have as a nation not accepted him, so they are his enemies. In the past, though, he made a covenant with their fathers. And he has a special love for Israel. He chose them. We call them the chosen people. And because he chose them, he will not break his covenants with them. They are, as I said to Mark, irrevocable. By the way, that's, that should encourage you. you. You can know that God's promise to you is never going to be taken back. People will promise you something and not follow through. Not God. If he makes a promise, he'll keep it. The word mercy... Elieo is the word in Greek. Elieo means to have a compassion or sometimes we might say a pity on someone and then meet the need for them that they can't meet for themselves. Did you ever think about that? No matter who you are, no matter how rich you are, no matter how powerful you are, you cannot provide yourself mercy. It's not possible. That's what this word means. It's given by someone else. Let me give you an example. There's a king, right, by the name of David, who has committed uh, some pretty serious offenses. And so he cries out, have mercy on me, O God, according to your great compassion, your, your pity, your compassion on me. In other words, here's the king of the planet at the time, the king of Israel. He's the commander in chief. He has all resources. He has all power. He can do anything he wants, but he cannot give himself mercy. So he says, God, I... I need you to come alongside and give me some of that mercy. The Gentiles were once disobedient to God, but God showed them mercy. In the same way, Israel's now disobedient to God and he will show them the same mercy. In other words, everybody gets the same. We have all been disobedient and God will give every one of us the opportunity for mercy. Salvation is always based on mercy. Always. And then we close with this thought. It's only in the state of disobedience that one can begin to understand God's mercy. When you are really dirty, right? You've worked hard and you're really dirty and that shower feels so good. That's this. Once you have known what it is to be disobedient, then God will give you his mercy if you ask and you will be clean like you've never been clean. And that's like, Whoa, so powerful. And that's what, that's what Paul does. Paul goes, whoa, just a minute, I have to take a break here. And this is what he says. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths are beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever, amen. In other words, Paul got so excited about that last thing he taught you, he had to stop and sing a little bit. And this is his doxology or his song. 
Paul's now concluded his explanation of the sovereignty of God. Now we've finished Romans 9 to 11. That's the point. We've learned all about mercy both to Jews and to Gentiles. And it is so exciting. It, is, it fills our hearts so much to know these things. To know that God's promises can never be revoked. That he will be merciful to you if you ask. It's just overwhelming. And so when that happens, we break into song. And Paul just gives us three verses here, a song of worship. We're reminded of God's attributes. He just stops and tells you a few things. He says God's wisdom and his knowledge, they're limitless. He knows all things. He, he knows how to act in all things, and he is limitless. The psalmist once said, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty. I, I can't think like you, God. That's right. Secondly, his ways are beyond man's understanding. So that three things, Paul tells you. By the way, these are Old Testament quotes. I have them listed here, but let me unpack them for you. Number one, we cannot know his thinking. His ways are not our ways. Our ways are not his ways. You cannot know God's thinking. It's not possible. His, his mind is so far above yours, you cannot know his thinking. I think I've told you before, but when my first wife passed away many years ago, I was struggling with the why. And my father-in-law, who was a brilliant, brilliant man, godly man, I went to him one day, and I must have said it for the 20th time to him, I just want to know why. And in the kindest way he could, he said, Denny, if God would explain why, you couldn't understand it, because your brain's so small. <laughs> that's, that's right. It was like an aha to me because God's mind is so big and mine is so small. There's no way I could understand it, so quit asking why. Secondly, you cannot give him advice. Again, coming from the book of Isaiah, you cannot give him advice. Oh, you all try. I do too when we pray, right? God, here's, here's what I'd like, and if you would do this, I think this would work well for my family or my business or whatever. God, here's some suggestions. And God doesn't need your suggestions or advice. And then thirdly, this is from the book of Job. Paul quotes Job to say, you can't have him in your debt. God, you can't have God owe you anything. Again, I'm gonna say, many of you try. You say things like, God, if you would give me this, then I will do that. God, if you help me win the lottery, I'll give you 10%. <laughs> God, if you heal me from my illness, then I will serve you. You see, you, what you're doing is you're trying to put God in debt. You can't do that. You could never put God in debt. So what you need to pray is, God, I will serve you. God, I will do the right thing. And then if God chooses to bless you in that, good for him but you still do the right thing. The final sentence reminds us of the complexity and the simplicity of our God. He's the beginning and the end of all things. Now, I've told you since last October that reading the Apostle Paul is hard for me, particularly when he talks theology. I have to read it and reread it and reread it again. You don't know how many hours I spend on each sermon because it's so hard to follow Paul for me. Well, we've worked our way through it. 
And now we come to basically the last sentence. And I was reading it this week, and it reminded me of something. When I was in first grade, my parents got me a book of the month club subscription. You didn't know they were that old. They, they could do that, but they did back then. So every month in a little kind of cardboard box in the mailbox, we, we would get this little thin package, and it would be my book of the month. And almost every one of them were Dr. Seuss. Again, I was just learning to read, so I would get my Dr. Seuss book, and I'd go in and sit on my dad's lap, and I'd read. Let me read to you. This is about green eggs and ham. And it says, would you like them here or there? And he says, I would not like them here or there. I would not like them anywhere. Now, has anybody had any trouble understanding that? Say, probably not, because it's written for a child. Look at this. This is written for a child. For from him and through him and for him are all things. If you haven't gotten anything else, you can get this. By the way, I find it interesting that such a simple sentence, and in fact, in English, every word is a single syllable word. For from him, here, and through him, there, and for him everywhere are all things. Boy, Paul really simplifies the last statement. And of course, then he just says, oh, wow, to him be glory forever. Amen. And that's the end of Romans 1 to 11 and the theology or orthodoxy section. Now, I think it would be appropriate if we as a church would just read those last three verses together. Let's read them aloud. And if you would, let's read slowly and try to grasp what we're reading. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen.